Hey, Michael. Thanks Hello. for coming on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Michael Oliver is the volunteer coordinator of MAPS Canada. He's also the founder of a wonderful brand called The Flying Sage. And yeah, I'm really grateful to have him here to talk to us today. Appreciate that. Yeah. Part of the impetus for this conversation was a question you uh, reached out to me a week or so ago mm-hmm. about, and I wonder if you just wanted to share that again so we could get into it. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to pull up exactly the words that I used, um, but it was, I was doing some journaling, I think, initially. And um, I remember I was just kind of posing some questions to myself. I've been doing some morning journaling uh, exercises lately and for whatever reason, I kind of wrote down this question and you instantly came to my mind. Um, and the question was, how do you know the witnessing presence is not the mind or not the ego? Mm. And yeah, when I wrote that down, I was like, that's a good question. I feel like Blake would have some really good insights into this. Mm. Could you share a little bit more about um, what was going on for you as you had that question? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a good question because it uh, was a little bit it was a little while ago now. I wonder what, because usually I don't journal, like usually my journaling entries lately have been focused on like like um, looking into the future, kind of like three-year, five-year vision um, kind of journaling prompts. But this one was kind of out, kind of left field in that sense. Hmm. But I mean, I can, I guess I can kind of contextualize the question and definitely let you know where kind of my, my, my mind was at then and maybe a little bit now when I'm reading it again. How do you know? And again, the question was, how do you know the witnessing presence is not the mind slash ego. And yeah, I guess like I've always felt after having, I guess some like interesting psychedelic and even just regular meditation experiences without the, the use of any sort of pharmacological enhancements, I've always, I've, I've started to get the impression that my, my sense of self has been shifting in its definition towards something that's, I guess, less confined uh, to what it might've been before. And just, I, I have a common, I commonly have this belief, I guess, that my, I should identify myself or I do identify myself more with what is behind um, the object of my awareness, I guess, mm. uh, which could be, maybe I'd call in some situations that would actually be my mind or my ego. But I guess at the end of the day, um, I've been identifying more with the, with the witness, the witnessing awareness. So like whatever it is, that's observing my, mm. the contents of my consciousness. Um, but then I, but I've, I have, I have had this thought before where it's like, okay, well, you know, if I can distinguish myself, I can kind of separate and I can see my, the contents of my consciousness here. And it's like, well, okay, now this is the awareness or the, um, yeah, the awareness behind it. Well, it's like, how do you know, I guess the kind of question is inspired by like the idea of, well, like, how do you know that there's not more levels to go yeah. back? Right. And totally. how far could we push it back? So th- that's kind of where my mind was at with the question. Yeah. That kind of reasoning, that recursive pushing the buck back further yeah, uh, exactly. reminds me of the like Thai, I think it's from Thailand mythology of how the world was created. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. So there's this question of like, what, if the world exists in space, uh, what does it rest on? And the answer, of course, is a giant turtle's back. Turtle. Oh, yeah. And then the next question is, okay, but what does that rest on? And the question or the answer is obviously another giant turtle's back. <laughs> so it leads to this wonderful uh, phrase of turtles the whole way down because you mm. just have to keep pushing back 
the cause or like what the thing is. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I just want to try and reframe what I'm hearing from you and see if I've picked up all the like important details. Sure. So there's this notion of observing the thoughts, processes, feelings that go on in your body and mind mm -hmm. and feeling a sense of distance from the egoic self, the sense of I that like, this is happening to me. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing your question is, is to really consider like, okay, well then what is the thing that is observing? Mm -hmm. And there's even this potential that perhaps it's a bait and switch. And really that this new observing self is just the eye masquerading as like, yeah, uh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, so I got to give a shout out to my Buddhist teacher, Gil Fronsdale. Uh, okay. He's from the, um, forget the insight meditation group in uh near san francisco and i've been listening to his podcasts on um online for free they're called audio dharma uh for okay. almost six or seven years now and i love his material it's just he's just really a beautiful speaker and thinker and i'm just going to crib one of his answers here and steal sure. it and give it to you because <laughs> okay. uh, i've heard him asked a similar question before it really resonated for me what his answer was. And so the question is like, how do we know that the observing self is in any way different than the egoic self? Mm -hmm. If, and especially if we want to rid ourselves of this clinging idea of like, I am this and I have to believe all this in order to be real. And I guess the, the response is we don't. We don't know if it's different, but at the same time, it's not clear that it should matter. Mm. I mean, if the practice is to simply observe and be with sensations and excitements that arise with uh, compassion and openness and a desire to simply observe them as they are without reacting to them, maybe it totally is the egoic self that is evoked or um, channeled when we do that. But you can just watch it and you can just see. Yeah. Like I'm familiar in myself in the beginning of my meditation practice, there were times where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm so chill right now. I'm definitely <laughs> observing. Oh, that was such a nuanced insight. And I watched it occur. Wow, cool. And then I, there was maybe a year or two years later, maybe even still today, six years later, there are times where I notice myself doing that. <laughs> I, I'm doing it and I'm participating in it and I'll think that I'm meditating and then I'll notice, oh, oh, I'm actually, I'm actually like really caught in this notion of like self-description or identity or whatever. Mm. And then I'll notice if I really pay attention that, oh, I don't like that which in itself is an egoic reaction, right? Like it's declaring right. of what I like. And, mm -hmm. and oh. it's interesting to note like, oh, I was being like vain or vapid and doing this thing that was like really just based on tricking myself into think I was succeeding. And so I, I don't know, felt cool or something. And then to notice, oh, and when I become aware of that, I have a reaction to that. And then that's another part of me is like, oh, well, you shouldn't do that. This, that's not who you want to be or whatever it is. But it's interesting to just keep 
doing that and keep noticing, ah, what is it like to be this? What is it like to experience this without a need to really declare or understand where it's coming from or what it means? Yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from there. And I, I guess no matter what, when you're in the actual experience of like meditating, for example, it shouldn't matter at all. But I guess I feel like my, my question maybe comes more from like a point of view of just like and understanding like the mechanics of what's going on, I guess, from the outside. And like, I think in the moment, I wouldn't really want to be super worried about this. And I think I totally agree in the moment when maybe when you are especially trying to meditate, this question wouldn't really matter and the answer to it wouldn't matter. But then mm-hmm. I feel like just when we're theorizing about consciousness itself and trying to create models, I guess more, more from the theoretical point of view of like what's going on, I guess, when people meditate and like yeah. trying to understand like the actual neural, maybe like one lens could be like the neural correlates of meditation and like what's going on with brain networks and stuff like this when, when uh, people are meditating and again to these states. And I guess like the neural correlates of the self and how that's, um, showing up in like the default own network or something, then then I feel like the question maybe becomes more relevant. I'm not sure. Maybe it still is irrelevant, but I feel like maybe it could be a bit more relevant in the sense that we want to know really what, if there is this phenomena that is being talked about of people, because it's very common for people to say that there is this observing self and it's distinct from this thing. It's like, well, I wonder, is there any like neural correlate of that? You know what I mean? Like, is there any physical thing that we can, look at that shows that it's distinct um yeah i mean i i guess my two things one is that as far as i'm aware there are clear um measurements you can do as simple as like with the eeg to show uh brainwave patterns that reflect that state of mindfulness so i think there are clearly differences um and then the other thing would be to what end like i would just ask like what again what does it matter like, is it so that we can better understand the philosophical implications of uh, an egoic way of orienting to the uh, reality? Or like, why would this be a worthy um, question to ask? Yeah. Well, I feel like it it's might be worthy. I mean, just in my opinion, to, to, to really have a, a truer sense of what we're talking about and I don't know if, if I just, I just feel like a lot of the conversation that's being had around um, sometimes I find like around meditation and the self and, and when we're talking about the awareness behind it, it it's being portrayed as something that is quite distinct. Um, maybe it's just mm. my interpretation of the conversations that I've been in having and, and other people I think I've been having, but yeah. I just, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it, it would be worthy to know because then we, then we would be able to have a clearer understanding of what it is that we're actually talking about or purporting to be experiencing. Because, uh, yeah, I feel like if, if we're saying that it's it's this thing, but it's actually this other thing, then, I don't know, it'd be nice to know what the truth is. Yeah, in some ways it would. <laughs> At the same time, for myself, I just, uh, I really appreciate the practical applications of uh, meditation practice. And for me, those are, increasing degrees of awareness and freedom, the ability to orient and choose, make informed choices that really are based in reality and have causal effect. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that we need to understand the philosophical um, like origins or um, how they are somehow 
contained or manifested on like a physical substrate in order to have that practical growth. And in oh, fact, yeah. I'm struck by like, if we're looking at this from a Buddhist perspective, a beautiful story uh, that the Buddha told of a young man, a farmer in a field who is uh, doing the harvest and from over a hill rides a strange anonymous warrior on a horse. And that warrior from horseback loads their bow and launches an arrow that strikes the farmer. And as the farmer falls, the rider disappears over the hill and a whole bunch of other farmers come over and um, take this farmer back, to, this injured farmer back to the village. And there they find that the wound is starting to turn green and that they can see that there was a poison on the tip of the arrow. And the villagers rush quickly and they get the wise woman, the medicine woman, and they bring her and she sees what's going on. And she recognizes that quickly they need to take the arrow out and treat the poison in the wound before it spreads too far in the farmer's body. And the wise woman says, Hey, Hey, I'm here. I'm it's, you've got an arrow close to your chest. It's poisoned. We need to get it out. And the farmer somewhat upset and distraught says, oh, yes, of course. But before we do that, I just need to know who shot me. And the wise woman who just got there looks around and she's like, does, does anyone know who, who saw this? Who shot him? But everyone shrugs and they don't know that the warrior was masked. And the farmer is like, oh, no, you can't. I just need to know why. Why did they shoot me? And the wise woman looks at him and she's like, sir, you're, you're dying before my eyes. Like, I need to take this out now if I'm going to help you. And the farmer goes, yes, of course, of course. Before you do, I need to know what kind of poison is it? She looks and she says, I, I can't tell, but I know that it's serious. He's like, okay, but what was the, what is the shaft made out of? What kind of wood did they shoot me with? And she looks and she says, sir, I'm not a carpenter. I do not know. And he's like, okay. <gasps> and what, what are the fletching, the feathers? What bird did they come from? And she throws her hands up in disgust. Ah, I cannot save you. You're a fool. And just like that, <gasps> he dies. <laughs> It's an interesting uh, parable. <laughs> so my uh, understanding of the story is that the Buddha told this in response to people who asked, what happens after we die? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And his point was that there are some questions that are worth asking and worth having answers to. But at the same time, they may not be the most urgent thing. Mm-hmm. And what we might want to focus on instead is dealing with practical forms of suffering that we are experiencing and finding ways to address and remove those so that we can, um, yeah, continue to live freely and actually solve the questions we might have. Yeah, I agree. In that story, I think that uh, warriors or that farmer is a, is a fool and <laughs> should not have been asking those questions at the time, but I wouldn't um, put it past him to be very curious about those things after he was all healed up and, and cured. Right. So definitely the yeah, wrong totally. time to be asking those questions, but For uh, sure. And I, I guess I'd be curious if you sat with this question that you had and if you simply observe it, it might, I don't know how long it would take, but I'd be really curious to hear what your 
uh, own reflections or answers that you arrive at or theories mm. or whatever. Yeah, I would I would have to get back to you on those reflections because I haven't had those yet. Yeah, totally. Look but, forward um, to that. But yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing up that that story. That's a, it's it's an interesting parallel to it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I got some other questions for you. Okay. I was wondering if you could switch in gears a little bit, tell us a little bit about what the Flying Sage is. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. Appreciate the question. So Flying Sage is a, is a clothing brand that I started with my sister in February and it's a psychedelic streetwear brand, I suppose, uh, would be a good name for it. And yeah, the, the idea behind it is basically to help change the narrative around psychedelics because as I'm sure people that might be listening to this would, will know is that there's a psychedelic renaissance happening right now and psychedelics are really... Um, there's just so many different avenues and crazy <laughs> stories being told and new stories being told about the way psychedelics can help treat people with mental illness and also can treat people with physical illness and it can also just make your life better even if you don't have an illness uh, treating people spiritually for using mm -hmm. people using psychedelics for personal development there's really lots of different avenues that are um, opening up right now but at the end of the day these things aren't really new and psychedelics have been around for so long and so um, yeah the, the idea with the flying stages we're hoping to ch change the narrative around psychedelics a little bit to help them um, to try and help this, the psychedelic re renaissance a little bit by getting rid of the stigma and so I think one big way I looked around and I thought you know one big way that people like to um, represent their themselves is through their clothing and um, I think it'd be cool for people to be able to represent the fact that they like to use psychedelics or that they have a psychedelic state of mind without needing to be so flashy. And so um, when I think back to a lot of psychedelic clothing, or even if you just look up psychedelic clothing, a lot of the clothing that you get is very like trippy and like tie dye and like seventies esque. And there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. That's cool. But at the same time, I feel like there's a space there for more uh, modern and I guess minimalistic uh, psychedelic design. So that's where we're trying to come in and, and just offer a different, uh, yeah, a different way for people to express themselves and express that they they are fans of psychedelics and that they've maybe gained benefits from that. And 10% uh, yeah. of profits are, are going to MAPS Canada, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies to help fund uh, psychedelic research. And and yeah, and the Flying Sage itself is kind of interesting. I originally I had the concept uh, for a video game. I wanted, to, I was at the time I was taking a, a comm sci class and we had to make like a video game. So originally the, the, my idea was to have this game um, where you're like this sage warrior and you're trying to collect a bunch of woke coins, which is like a cryptocurrency. <laughs> and you're trying to get like more woke uh, to a certain point where you can like use these woke coins on like items and in-game in purchases or whatever. But then that idea pivoted, but what, what kind of retained was the idea behind the actual flying sage itself. And so a sage in philosophy is someone who's attained wisdom. And the idea behind the flying sage is that it's someone who's attained wisdom by being really high. And that's why they're flying because they've attained wisdom through using uh, psychedelics and stuff so yeah cool two things oh, three things one is that wow what a pivot from a video game to uh new streetwear yeah <laughs> that's massive yeah. um the another one is just the at the risk of getting into joe rogan territory i've been <laughs> amazed recently by all this research that's coming either coming to light or maybe just being done now that shows that like since time like immemorial beyond recorded time it seems like sages or holy people or even just like religions in general um have been using psychedelics for like mm. part of their 
practice and their spiritual practice. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, it is really crazy. It goes back so so far, and for so many different cultures too. Like you think maybe it would just be like certain certain parts of the world, but really it's like really spread out all over the place. Yeah, totally. Like I just heard there was some archaeology find that showed that like an ancient Jewish temple had cannabis on their altar, mm. and then like I've heard I've learned so much in the past year about soma and all mm. these different brews that have traveled through the Middle East and Greece um, that a lot of people hypothesize are a whole bunch of different things, but Generally, like there's evidence that they're either different kinds of psychedelic mushrooms or um, plants like, is it morning glory? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Yeah, and just that like, I don't know, more and more the stoned ape theory by Dennis McKenna, this idea that like our ancestors really evolved and grew to be the dominant species we know today through like expanding their minds through these plant technologies, starting to make a lot of sense. There's a lot of evidence, like not just theorizing, like, finds and records and yeah it's nuts it is really nuts yeah i heard the term Eleusian mysteries too quite a bit and i think yeah. that refers to like a roman ritual i think um yeah easy to hear all these and I, I wouldn't be surprised right like i they've been around for a while so i'm sure like it wasn't the people in the 70s or 60s that <laughs> yeah and the, the last thing i just want to say is dude the flying stage clothing is beautiful thank yeah, you so I'll much for the that. Yeah, thanks so much for the shirt, by the way. I rock yeah. that all the time. Okay, sweet. Great. Glad to hear. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, we're trying I to come up people... with some new designs soon, so nice. stay tuned for that. Tell me how you do that, because like a bunch of the stuff I've noticed is designed by different artist friends. Or mm -hmm. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, so I was really lucky. Like At UBC, I was, I'm was i a musician, and I was part of a music club called Blank Vinyl Project. And it's it was a really awesome community that's still uh, really strong at UBC, and it's been around for a few years now. And uh, through that club, I just got to met got to meet a, a, a bunch of really awesome artists, not only musicians but also visual artists. So I think a couple of the artists that I uh, reached out to have been friends that I met through that club. Uh, a couple of of them have been friends that I've just met through friends. Like I remember when I first started, uh, when I created the the brand in the first place, I you know I had a couple of people that I thought would be good for it. Um, Cause I, myself, I think I'm pretty creative and like a lot of the designs themselves, I, um, I guess thought of, but I then mm. asked my friends to design them. And yeah. so that's kind of what you see with most of the designs there. But what I started to realize is when I started the brand, it was just, yeah, like it was really nice to, to see like friends of mine would recommend their friends. They're like, Oh, you're starting this psychedelic brand. I have a friend who's like super into art and like they would solely vibe with you. And then they would just put me in touch with them. And then now we have nice. like a, a cohort of like some really talented, um, graphic designers that are really passionate about psychedelics which is nice and so they're they're really happy to participate in these sort of projects and and it's nice to it's a nice change from some other project work that i'm involved in uh like yeah. artistic work is a whole other ball game so yeah it's been really cool yeah for sure i guess something i'd be really curious about um is as you create this this clothing company that um i think correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's based on like the drop shipping model where yeah. you use a manufacturer uh, to create things on demand as you get new orders, mm -hmm. um, yep. which is, by the way, like, yeah, kudos for taking a step into that world. It's something I've uh, attempted to do and it, yeah, it's difficult and there's a lot to learn. Um, and I'd be curious to hear like uh, what you found really works to help um, help that model thrive and actually be effective. And yeah, maybe just that. Yeah, sure. I can talk to a bit, a bit to it. Like I, I definitely have a lot of learning to do. So I'll first just start off by saying that, like there's lots of stuff that I'm learning and with COVID it definitely, um, it was a bit difficult. I mean, we didn't suffer too much, but 
at the same time, a lot of shipping times and all that stuff got really severely affected initially mm -hmm. at COVID and it hasn't really fully tapered back off yet, but I think, you know, I'm sure eventually we'll get there, but I mean, yeah, the drop shipping model is really cool for anyone that hasn't uh, heard about it. You should check it out because it definitely offers a lot of freedom. And that was part of my interest in exploring it uh, in the sense that you, you don't really have to worry too much about stock and like shipping itself. I mean, you do have to worry a little bit about the technicalities behind shipping and you have to uh, set your prices and if there's returns and stuff, you got to deal with that. But for the most part, um, it's like an automated system. Like people get an order and they, they get their uh, piece sent to them, which is really awesome. And I'm excited to see that that industry itself is actually growing quite a lot there. At the moment, we haven't had factories in the States. So I would say that was one kind of learning piece was that um, it really helps to have a manufacturer that's local to Canada if you're trying to sell to people that live in Canada, because otherwise gotcha. people are ordering stuff. And it's really weird also, there's like, I learned that there's no really standard rules around duties. Like it just kind of is like, sometimes there's duties and sometimes there's not. And we've tried to get to the bottom of why some products, <laughs> some people re receive duties and why they don't. And the, the, the people are just, they can't give us answers. It's just like, oh, well, some people just will get duties. And it's like, that kind of sucks. So anyways, they're, they're starting, the people that we work with are starting a factory now in Toronto uh, anytime now, actually. It's, I think they're just about to open it up. So that's going to be really huge for us because now people who order from Canada, well, there's no chance they're going to get duties and the shipping time is going to be super fast nice. um but yeah other than that like it, it's really just allowed me to focus on the creative aspect of the business uh, i'd say which has been really nice it really takes a lot of the i think the what people would typically consider if they're trying to think about starting a something like a clothing business all the yeah. difficult technicalities around how to actually um ship and manage inventory all of that's taken off of your hands so i think it really opens up a lot of freedom to be able to focus on stuff that's uh that matters yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, just some technical questions. Are you using Shopify? Uh, yeah, so we use Shopify for our, um, I guess you call it POS or like the front the front end of everything. And then that's yeah. integrated with a, an app or a company called Printful, which is our uh, supplier. Okay, cool. And yeah, for any listeners who might not know, Shopify is a Canadian company, pretty cool. And mm -hmm. they make e-commerce uh, super, super easy. You can sign up for an account and then they give you all the tools to uh, build your store and do everything yeah and it's super easy so if you're thinking about making a store just go and do it like literally you get a free trial you can drag and drop stuff onto your website they have all these templates that look beautiful and it really doesn't take um, a lot of you don't need any web design knowledge no coding experience like it's it's like honestly so seamless it's, it's pretty awesome yeah totally it's a crazy time yeah. we're living in blake for sure that there's all these technologies that can like allow us to do these crazy things. Like you tell your parents like, Oh yeah, I'm creating this clothing company. We're ordering stuff to people all around the world. They'd be like, Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The logistics totally. of that. Yeah. The logistics seems so difficult, but then it's not. And then it's, yeah, it's crazy. Every time I get an order and I see like someone's ordered something from Mexico and some people the other day, someone ordered from New Zealand. I was like, Holy shit. Like that's crazy. And like, then there's a factory in Europe. So it actually is faster to ship to New Zealand than it is to ship to to Canada oh, wow. sometimes it's like with the u.s it is really weird but yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you done a have you done any celebrity endorsements uh that's a good uh good question i think we're on our we're on track to start doing that i definitely want to get more into that and i think you kind of open up the can of like influencer marketing almost um because mm -hmm. at the end of the day uh what was the word that you just used celebrity yeah I don't know. yeah yeah so like celebrity influencer those are kind of the same thing uh i have paired with a I have partnered up with a couple of people uh, recently. So you might be able, you might start seeing um, that those partnerships soon, but they're more, Everywhere. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually we want to get to more people. So yeah. If, so, you, if you know of people that are uh, might, might be interested in partnering with something like that, then we definitely love to have that conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, uh, there's one thing. It's just like there's a hockey player in Vancouver who's a young, young gun, best hockey player uh, on the team for sure in Vancouver at least, and then okay. one of the best in the league. His name's Elias Pedersen, and he is super into fashion. Um, don't know how he feels about psychedelics, but there's right. also players like uh, Jonathan Taves of the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, he's won a bunch of okay. Stanley Cups and uh, Olympic gold medals. He's come out a couple of times in podcasts and talked about how big psychedelics have been in no encouraging his life. Um, might be something to look into Jonathan Taves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if anybody wants to, yeah. If anybody wants to hear those podcasts, I believe he's been interviewed by Aubrey Marcus uh, a couple of okay. times. Um, Interesting. That makes me think yeah. of the fight that just happened uh, last night. I think it was with um, Mike Tyson and John Jones. I think his name is, I don't really run oh, into boxing, but yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently Tyson multiple times has come out as well, saying that lately yeah. psychedelics have really informed his sense to kind of return to fitness. And like he said, I think he was cited somewhere saying like one of the big reasons that he came to fight again last night for the first time in like years since he fought was because he took five uh, meo DMT. Crazy. <laughs> and it told him to like, yeah, you got to go back and fight. And it's like, wow, that's crazy. Who won the fight? Uh, I think it was a draw. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'll have to check the highlights. Yeah. Um, also though, I've seen one of your shirts being held by the one and only Paul Stamets. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> How did that cool happen? Actually. Yeah. That was actually, that was a really, that was an awesome, um, awesome experience. So like I was in, I flew myself out to Costa Rica to go to Envision Festival, which is like this big kind of like hippie music festival out in the jungle. It's really sweet. It's like right on the beach and, and the jungle and you stay there in tents and it's uh, in February. And I actually went there to surprise my friend who had invited me. I told him that I wasn't going to end up going, but then I actually secretly went there and surprised <laughs> him. Uh, and there's a video of that somewhere floating around. It's, it's pretty funny. But, um, but yeah, so one of my goals, that was like, I, I launched my business on February 6th. And so this was around February 20th. So this was right when I first started it. And I was all eager. I like got my business cards and like super like eager to like share the, the word yeah. and get the word out there. Right. So I thought, wow, this is going to be the perfect opportunity. I'm going to this psychedelic festival and literally, it's a very psychedelic festival. It's like, you know, similar in the same avenue as Shambhala or something here in BC, uh, but on a pretty big scale. I think there was upwards of like, I don't know, like 15, 16,000 people at the, on the, in the weekend. Um, but anyways, I knew Paul Stamets was there and I've been a fan of Paul Stamets for a while now. If for anyone who doesn't know, Paul Stamets is like a world-renowned, famous um, mycologist and also a business owner, entrepreneur. He does a lot of things, author. He, he's one of those people that wears a lot of hats and his hats are actually made out of mushrooms, which is crazy. <laughs> I was going to say, we should define mycologist. Uh, mycology oh, is the, the study of mushrooms or mycelium, the organisms that produce uh, mushrooms. Yeah, exactly. So this guy loves his mushrooms and is like made a, made a living now and, an, and a really a big name for an himself. Empire. About, yeah, he's made an empire talking about mushrooms and creating, solving these really fascinating problems with mushrooms. I think um, he solved this, he has a patent on a, on a mushroom project that, that helps solve uh, termite infestations. I think I, I might be wrong on that. I, I think, think it's it might be something else. I think it's a uh, carpenter ants. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, exactly. Carpenter yes. ants. So, so he has an open source patent on uh, a mycelium that you can, that's like pennies to produce that you can put in your house. If you have a, a carpenter ant infection and supposedly I haven't verified this, but this, I trust the guy. He says that the carpenter ants will come along, eat the mycelium, go back to their nest or whatever, and it will time release like a ticking time bomb, blow yeah. up, and then spread hyper 
hyperinfective mycelium throughout all the ants, kill them, so it'll destroy the colony. And then also it will be like highly contagious and stay there, the mycelium, for like something like 10 years. So if there's any other carpenter ants that may become nearby or whatever, um, they'll catch it too. And yeah. Yeah, it's mind blowing. Yeah, he tried to sell it, market it, and then people the all the pesticide companies were like, this is amazing. Oh wait, this will put us out of business. Because <laughs> instead of having to buy it each year or like once a month, they'll only have to buy it once. Oh, sorry, we can't. This won't work. We'll never do it. Yeah, man. It's crazy. And he has there's so many other products like that that he he has these open source patents for. And um so yeah, he really truly is like a, a mushroom entrepreneur, a mushroom yeah. god, you could you could say. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah one of my goals when i went to envision was to gift him a shirt so it was one of the intentions that i really had heavily on my mind mm. and i saw him in the first couple of days when i was at the festival and it was a lot quieter than like the first couple it's a seven-day festival so the first couple of days is there's not as many people and so i actually got to see him walking around with his his partner and i was like oh wow that's paul stamets i'm like I'm, he's here that's amazing awesome and then so i had so i had this basically a bag of shirts that i brought and i was kind mm. of getting upset because i had seen three of his he gave three talks and all of them were just like packed. Like they're just all like sweaty, um, naked people, just like basically in the, jungle. in the jungle, like in swarms, just like listening to this guy talk about mushrooms. It was crazy. Um, but yeah. so I, I, I had attempted to approach him during one of those talks, but it's obviously just crazy because there's people lining up for hours trying to talk to him and get a, get book signed or whatever. So anyways, on like one of the last days of the festival, I'm just walking around taking pictures with my sister's camera. I'm not really a photographer, but I was trying to get into the, into that vibe and i was like looking at this through my camera i was looking at this um girl's glasses she had these really cool funky glasses on and i was kind of like trying to get a cool picture of them and then as i zoomed out all of a sudden in my peripheral i just saw this tie-dye shirt that i instantly recognized as paul stamets shirt which he always wears when he presents i'm like no way so i like look and it's it's freaking paul stamets i'm like holy crap and, he, and no one was around it was just him and his like security kind of team and his partner and i'm like wow so i like instantly ran over to this girl that i had met during the festival um ally and i'm like ally paul stamets right over there I, I need to give him a shirt and and she knew that i wanted to do that so she's like oh my god yeah. no way. He comes over with a camera i'm like can you can you uh please take a photo of me with paul and then so i got to i got to meet actually pam chris crisco who's uh, pa uh paul's partner that was my first time meeting her she's actually here, based here in vancouver and oh I cool her, and then i got to yeah take a photo with paul and we talked a little bit about maps canada uh, i mentioned to him that i've been working with him for a while and he's a really big fan because he yeah, uh, totally. All, all of his work doesn't necessarily focus just on psychedelic mushrooms. In fact, most of it isn't, but he obviously yeah. does. Uh, he wrote a, a book called, I think, Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World. So he's, yeah, he knows. <laughs> I just yeah. saw that book, actually, an original print of it. Yeah. Oh, well, cool. It taught, it taught me a lot about psilocybin mushrooms, like that, the kind of trippy mushrooms that I had no idea. Like little <laughs> tip, tip advice for anybody who cares. Um, Cubenses are like, Golden Teacher is one of the most like common uh, commercially available magic mushrooms on the market. Um, they, they were picked and they've become so popular because they're, they have a shell, uh, stable shelf life. And actually in Paul's time, it's book, which he must've wrote when he was like in his early twenties or something. Um, he talks about how their half-life is around eight months uh, before they're at half of what their effective or like potency is. Mm -hmm. So for, since I was a kid, people were like, yeah, I've had these mushrooms in my drawer for like two years. Do you think I should still eat them or something? 
Um, and now I know that like the fresher, the better. And that especially applies to like cyanenses or all these other different kinds of magic mushrooms um, that have a much shorter shelf, shelf life. But even for cubenses, uh, golden teachers, yeah, if you, if you want to get the full potency or whatever, um, it's best to eat them within like two to three months of their harvest. Okay, that's interesting. No, I had no idea. Yeah, I was stoked when I found that book. Thanks for the tips, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> have you ever yeah. uh, foraged yourself? I have not. And I had the opportunity this... Um, Actually, I have a really funny story about this. There's a, in Vancouver, Canada, there's the Mycological Society of Vancouver, which is filled with just original gangsters of foraging for mushrooms. And I went to, they have like each year, this big event at, I don't know, like at a church or something where people come around and they're selling crafts and other like forage wild mushrooms. You can eat them and, or take them home or whatever. Um, and one of the guys who was the president for years, can't remember his name, but he looks like, a shorter version of Gandalf and he's just like super well-spoken but if you looked at him you might be like oh who's this guy he looks a little bit like odd or like eccentric um he, he had a big, big thing yeah huge gray beard I think his, his name might be Paul Kroger yes it is Paul Kroger yeah, yeah totally yeah so he has so much respect for this guy he was having a presentation the like key presentation that day and it was open to the public mind you it's like you pay five dollars when you come in it's like nothing and then I walk into this auditor auditorium that's just filled with a whole range of people from the modern world. And Paul gets up there and for two hours gives a lecture about the origins going back as far as we know about psychedelic mushrooms. Wow. And he just ends with the last 40 minutes of the presentation are how to cultivate them in your backyard for free. Like wow. he gave instructions on how to like, identify them in Vancouver, which mm -hmm. apparently they're everywhere talking about, uh, I think he was talking about cyanenses. Am I okay. saying that right? Um, yeah, I think so. Their common name is wavy caps. Mm. He, he showed us very meticulously because you got to be really careful with these little brown mushrooms, but he showed us meticulously how to identify them. And then also informed us that the Vancouver city council or whatever gives away free wood chips from its landscaping program. And so if you go there with a bucket, they'll give you a bunch of wood chips. You can throw those in your backyard and cyanenses love wood chips. So you can go to a patch where they're growing, scoop up a little bit, transplant them. And then in the fall, when they typically blossom, the next year, you'll just have this patch of cyanenses. <laughs> and no I'm sitting there looking around being like, how many motherfuckers in here right now were like <laughs> expecting to like hear this in a public forum? It was just, yeah, it was nuts. That's wonderful. That's so crazy. Yeah. I've heard about that. And I've heard that they actually grow on city hall, like on the, yeah. the yeah. lawn. <laughs> totally. Here in Victoria, actually, um, last week I was walking past the fire station and there was a bunch of Liberty caps, which are another kind oh, of really? sickle mushrooms, like full yard full of them. Yeah. Wow. And I was just like, I wonder if the firefighters know. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've always wanted to try try uh, making mushrooms, but I've always thought about doing it indoors. And I feel like you have to have a really uh, pay close attention to uh, like sterilization. And mm. um, I, I have that uh, belief that you kind of need quite a bit of equipment. But then when I actually looked into it, I guess there's you don't really need too much. You just need like a couple buckets and yeah, um, or 
borders or whatever. And yeah, it seems like a manageable task for people that would be curious and have the, the discipline to focus on it for a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And I just want to say to anyone listening that, um, yeah, you can definitely grow mushrooms at your house. And also right now we're in this interesting period of time where Canada's attitudes towards, especially psychedelic mushrooms is really generous and patient. Mm -hmm. And so long as you're not doing stupid things like giving them to minors or whatever, um, the risk of cultivation or possession is quite, quite minimal, especially Mm -hmm. if you're using them in a really intentional and medicinal way. Uh, so yeah, I think it definitely is possible for those who have the the aptitude and the interest that they can figure out how to, to grow them really inexpensively. You can grow them in a closet. Um, it helps to have a room that you can like control the temperature and airflow, but it's really quite simple. Yeah. Which is amazing at how powerful they are and the fact that people can have that at their fingertips if they so desired. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we can jump into the maps that you wear a little bit more. I'd be curious to hear what your, um, what got you into working in this emerging field well, emerging, but in contemporary terms of uh, psychedelic medicine and yeah, I'm really curious to hear more about your journey as somebody, one of the few people I know at this point in time who is actively working in this field in like a career base. Yeah, appreciate that. I'd love to dive into it. It's it's something that I I still sometimes I'm like pinch myself in some ways because I'm like when I think back to myself like four years ago, like working for Maps would literally have been like a dream job, and literally for the longest time it was like I didn't even think about it because I'm like that's yeah I don't know that's just crazy. it's impossible. Yeah, <laughs> literally though. And um, yeah, like my, my start, I guess would, I would say would be like obviously personal experience with these things uh, dating back to uh, coming out of high school, um, having really profound experiences with psychedelics uh, definitely sparked my personal interest in them um, and just kind of led me on a spiritual journey, I suppose, of like uh, kind of expo- self-exploration that, the, you know, the way of the psychonaut, you could say um, mm-hmm. that was something that just really fascinated me and that the fact that you could use these things to explore yourself and like reflect and kind of analyze the structures kind of going back to what we were even talking about initially here about like getting that third third uh, bird's eye view I guess you could say about on yourself and like how you're operating I just found that it was very alarming mm. at first I know I sometimes feel like maybe I was using them too soon like maybe I didn't have the the grounding the groundedness mm. yet of, of like a self to begin analyzing um but nevertheless like i it was even though there was some turbulent kind of integration i guess there or lack thereof um i made it out of that and then did integrate the experiences eventually uh, i'd say so we're still get we're still going there obviously it's a it's a process but anyways um yeah the the actual how i got into it uh, with maps i think was initially my participation with the ubc psychedelic society so when i ended up coming back to ubc after taking some time off I met some really wonderful people who were uh, basically starting at that time or had just started a, a psychedelic society at UBC. And this was, you know, four or five years ago now. So when, the, when and back then, the, there was still a lot more stigma around psychedelics and, and you didn't get all the, the public kind of, it is starting to go mainstream now. Back then it was definitely still under the radar. So it was really cool to meet this little group. And I felt like yeah. uh, I could really, um, you know, sympathize with them and like communicate uh, in an open way with these people. Cause like, you know, we, we understood where, each, where we were all coming from and we all had these mystical profound experiences. And so, um, yeah, started helping out with the psychedelic society and the two people that started it, uh, Manesh and Mia, they were just graduating also. So they needed someone to step in to take, kind of take the reins. And so I was, I put my uh, name in the hat and was lucky enough to get that um, spot to, to help out with the, the club. And so really for three years, I kind of 
was serving as the president for this club. And wow. one, of my, one of my goals was to really how I saw it best. I mean, we, we had discussions around what we wanted the club to look like. And some of the main things that we wanted to do was basically bring in guest speakers to talk about mm -hmm. psychedelics. And funny enough, the reason I know Paul Kroger is because I invited him and set up a talk nice. with him to come. Uh, I think me and Manesh did uh, to, to talk, to have him basically give a talk on mushrooms because he actually is a, is a UBC professor, I believe. Um, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think, or he's like, uh, he does a lot of work there, like in residence. Yeah, something like that. Um, so anyways, it was really awesome to hear him talk. And yeah, so we had a bunch of speakers like him. We had doctors come in, um, therapists, shamans. We just tried to get a, a bunch of people to come in and, and basically wow. give these talks because as a club, we were able to get these spaces in the, um, for free. Um, so we could just basically host events uh, pretty easily. So mm -hmm. that was really nice. And then the other angle that I really thought was really important was I was recognizing that all these people like that would come to the club would usually have had a really powerful psychedelic experience. And we're looking for that sense of community, exactly how, what I was looking for when I found those people, right? So people are coming in and they have these experiences. They don't know how to integrate them. And, of, and oftentimes people don't have the, the family or the friends that are accepting of that, especially four or five mm -hmm. years ago. I, I'm happy to see that that's changing now, but it's hard when you have such an amazing experience, but you can't, you don't feel um, open to, to share it with people, right? Or you don't feel like people would want to hear it. So anyways, yeah. the, the other angle that I thought was really important was the, um, just yeah, creating those safe spaces where people felt comfortable to share their experiences through. And so we would do stuff like bonfires, jam, jam sessions, wow, cool. kind of like social events. It was really crazy. Honestly, I remember standing on uh, Rec Beach is this beach near UBC that we're lucky to have right on the doorstep there. And every year we would do a, a psychedelic barbecue um, down there. And we'd get like, sometimes I think on the, the bigger ones, we had like 40, 40, upwards of 40 people down there. And it was just nice. amazing to think like, wow, we have all these people here in public on a university campus under the name of a, uni a, a university approved club, like talking about the medicinal and like purposeful use, intentional use of psychedelics. I always thought that was mind blowing. I'm like, wow, we're so lucky because mm -hmm. that's starting to happen now more and more all over the place. But yeah. And then eventually I, I got to meet Anne-Marie, who was actually um, the, the person that was that had my job before me. And she was kind of like the first person that introduced me to MAPS Canada. She was at UBC uh, working an event with the MAPS booth for, I think it was a cannabis conference or something. And so I, I met her and I, I'm like, wow, MAPS is so cool. I didn't even know there was a MAPS Canada. I, like I had heard of MAPS, right? But I'm like, MAPS Canada, like that's so cool. And like I, then I found out it was her and, and Mark and it started uh, not too long ago and they were doing this amazing work. And so I signed up to be a volunteer and yeah, I think I attended uh, these general volunteer meetings, uh, which you know of, and you've been to a bunch of those back at the Spencer Creo Center. Uh, I remember going to those, whatever that was now, like two, two, three years ago and started volunteering and just showing up and listening to what the conversation was like. And um, yeah, that's how kind of how I got my, my foot in the door. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just want to acknowledge and say thank you for the work you do. Um, MAPS is for anyone who doesn't know, MAPS is a pretty incredible organization that for a long time, um, starting with the founder in the States, Rick Doblin, has been doing the heavy lifting to legalize uh, psychedelic use and therapy in America and by association, the rest of the world. And yeah, the local chapter here in Canada, MAPS Canada and Mark Hayden, um, for the whole time that I've been involved with it and working with it for the last years, a couple of years, um, you've been in this role of coordinating all the volunteers and running the meetings and sending out the messages. And I just want to say you do a fantastic job and that it's really cool to see the impact that your efforts and time and care are having and helping bring this medicine to the people. So thanks for being in that role and doing such of a great course. job. 
I really appreciate that it means so much to me. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, man. Um, I'm curious what gave you the confidence or how did you feel co- comfortable entering into this role as like the president? First off, it sounds like it was in your first or second year of university and to be a president of a club, that's just a big step. But then also just like given the stigma and giving the attitude that was um, occurring with it in like, what would have that have been like 2012, 13? Um, no, I think it would have been, it would have been 2015. I think when I, when I joined the club or even 2016, because I think I graduated okay. high school, 2014, did kinesiology okay. for a year, took a year off and then came back. So yeah, it was like 2016, I think. Yeah. So what gave you the green light to do that? And like, what was the reaction of like your family or your friends? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. I think like ultimately one of the biggest lessons that I've had from the secular experience was to trust myself. And that's also one of the mm. biggest lessons that I feel Terrence McKenna um, advocates for. And he was one of the biggest um, guiding figures for me when I first started getting into the space, which is an interesting guiding figure to have. Um, <laughs> if I do say so for uh, myself, um, yeah, he's a very interesting fella. If you haven't checked out his work yet please do he's probably one of the most proficient i think and skilled users of language that i've ever come across his ability to um, poetically describe the state's uh, uh, experiences that he's had is just amazing mm. um yeah he, he has some very interesting ideas and um <laughs> so one of his ideas was to trust yourself and i remember just like that really striking a chord with me and so yeah despite all the stigma i was very lucky enough to have i guess parents that were supportive of kind of whatever I wanted to do and you know like obviously at the time they 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 didn't really get get it like when I was like oh yeah I'm putting my time into doing this club you know they're they're kind of like well that seems kind of odd or they they didn't really fully understand why I would want to be doing that especially when these drugs are illegal right but at the same time they they didn't they never told me like not to do it or you know should I be away for it they just kind of like like well make sure you keep focusing on your studies right um, mm-hmm. And for me, it was always like, I, I also wasn't fully sure about it. So when I stepped into that role, it wasn't like I was giving up everything and just focusing on this. It was always something that um, with a club and I, I'm, anyone who runs or is part of a club, it's usually something that you're kind of supporting on the side, right? Like it's, you have all yeah. your focus. And this is like an extra thing that you're trying to contribute to. And, but I don't know, for me, I honestly just never, I, these experiences are so powerful and my, my benefits that I got from them was so profound that I, I just couldn't ignore it you know and i couldn't mm. put it away and and the fact that they're illegal and it had so much stigma around it i guess my personality just was attracted to that issue and was very conscious of the fact that that seems very odd that these things are so amazing yet they're so stigmatized like that seems kind of stupid to me so i just kind yeah, of explored right. that and, and it was always honestly it was always something for me that kept pulling me back so that there was times maybe where i'd shift my focus away for a while i was in a band and i was like you know I just want to do music for the rest of my life. And part of me still wants to just do that. I think maybe one day I'll retire and just do that or something, but um, yeah, like psychedelics and the psychedelic space just kept always pulling me back. Cause I knew that there was like work to be done there. And I felt like in whatever weird way, like I had something to say and something to offer because mm. I did have these early experiences. And I think I did, even though maybe it wasn't the most efficient way of integrating. Like I think at, at the, at the age that I was at and, at the time I was at, like, I think I did a good job at going, I boldly went into those experiences with pretty heavy doses and got some pretty crazy insights and took a while to integrate them. But when I did integrate them, I looked around and I realized that other people needed help integrating these things. And so Mm. I just felt like I could, I really want to 
offer and be of service. And so to me, that was one of the ways that was clear that I could, I could help and be of service. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And I think the world's a better place for having people like yourself who have the opportunity to explore these technologies and really like consume or engage with them. And then don't just like, I think there's a real possibility to be overwhelmed by the change that they offer, the potential that they represent. And I think it's a really beautiful gift to have those who are resilient and resourced enough to be like, what just happened? And how do I make sense of this? And how can I take what I learned here and share it with community and like build stronger relations that really like Mm. integrate these teachings? Because I know speaking from personal experience and my relationship with psychedelics, it's really hard. It's really hard Mm. to go from being like high up here and then come back to sober reality, which is where we live and where our lives exist. And to maintain these senses of like profundity and truth mm. and joy. So thank you for, for doing that work. Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's literally my like, honor. And I should, I should say that there's a privilege there in, um, in being able to do that work, right? Like the very fact that I had access to those substances at that age, yeah. at that time, not like a lot of people might have wanted to do that, but the, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to education. Like I had the time and ability to like research these things when I could have been doing a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. I, I was, I had the privilege to be able to listen to Terrence McKenna for two hours, talk about uh, psychedelics and on YouTube or whatever, and, and other mm-hmm. people, Alan Watts and whatever. And then I, I guess I had the privilege to be able to go and buy them. And I don't know, like, it's not something I've talked about a lot with people, but I do think there's, there really is a, a privilege there um, totally. that I, that I think, is important to recognize because not everyone even has the opportunity to take them if they wanted to. For sure. I mean, don't, right? think, think about the freedom of persecution that you experienced being a white affluent male in BC, Canada, compare that to like how many young black people are in prison for possession of a joint, like marijuana totally. joint. And yeah. yeah. And, or if you're an indigenous person and you, this is a part of your culture, this is a part of your history like the kind of pressures or social um, judgment that comes is completely different than um, you or I might face. And so I really appreciate you acknowledging and speaking to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just so important because I, yeah, I, when I think back to it, like obviously at the time when in high school, when I first started experimenting with psychedelics, I was obviously to some extent nervous about it and like nervous about the legality around it. But after mm-hmm. I had kind of had a few experiences and realized that they were positive and then, and then kind of just caught a little bit on the train of like the science, like once I realized that there was like an academic outlet for this, then really like there was no, no, it never entered my mind that I was like, should be like, I was doing it wrong. And honestly, this sounds weird to say it because obviously they're illegal, but I just realized that the laws around that were just stupid. And I made the decision, yeah. stupid. but obviously like not everyone has that, um, the privilege to be able to have that stance on it and it definitely comes from the fact that i am quite uh, affluent and um yeah having access to to good education too around these things totally i think one of the promises that i've heard um mark hayden speak to and various people who carry these medicines and really try to um, bring them to the people in a good way is figuring out how to make them wildly widely available and to do so with care and safety. And obviously there's got to be a whole bunch of steps that happen. You can't just put them in the water or something. But at the end of the day, like the, one of the crazy things about 
like magic mushrooms. We were talking about this earlier. They grow everywhere. They're pennies to produce. And like LSD or MDMA are really inexpensive. And they're way, way more effective, especially when they're combined with therapy and like three or four hours of like talking to somebody who understands them. They're way more effective than like Ritalin or uh, SSRIs or whatever. And so, yeah, I really appreciate MAPS Canada and MAPS USA's focus on like, okay, we got to legalize these and get them through the crazy bureaucratic bureaucratic system Mm -hmm. to make them like legally viable as a medicine. And then once that happens, how can we set them up so that they're affordable and accessible to people of every strata of the social sphere? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's definitely one of the trickier problems that MAPS is facing as a general, like as a whole, or as an organization in the whole. Like, I think that's one of the trickier problems because like you say, it is a bureaucratic system that they're working with. And Mm -hmm. that bureaucratic system is not really established or founded on principles that make it easy to give these things to everyone, right? So it's like to to get it through that system, the end result is almost certainly not going to be in its initial form accessible to everyone precisely because it has to be regurgitated through this system and so there's going to have to be some backtracking and i think a lot of the answer to that question is going to come to the underground world because i really don't think initially um these things are going to be accessible um to to everyone in the in the initial way that it's going to be released because if you look at how like what people will be needing to pay it's it's very expensive to have just think about if you just think about the the treatment um, modality itself like what they're going to be rolling out is it's as you mentioned it's in combination with a therapist and in the case of mdma assisted psychotherapy for ptsd it's two therapists um with high credentials to one participant so the very fact that you would to have this experience you basically need to be paying for two therapists for you know a long time it's like you're they're with you for a whole day you need to integrate you need to connect with them beforehand so it's a long process and that's very expensive so i hope I, i'm really looking towards the underground uh, community to really come together in a strategic and positive way to uh, mm-hmm. to really make sure that these things are accessible for everyone. Yeah. And I just want to clarify here that the modality you're speaking to is what the research has been uh, constructed by uh, or like set up as, which explicitly was set up to give the best possible results. So mm-hmm. it's like throw as much stability and support as possible at the problem. It's not, the study was not at all aimed at finding what's the like um, most affordable, effective way of doing this uh, for the masses. And yeah. so I think if we look at historical uh, precedents, we see so much of like community oriented group therapy or mm. less formal, like you don't need to have two people with doctorates to do it, which as of the last time I heard was one thing that like Health Canada was actually considering like two PhDs yeah. sitting <laughs> with somebody for like 24 hours or whatever to help them go through this process, which I'm myself, I have been in countless medicine ceremonies with um, shamans or whatever you want to call them, where there's like either six or eight people for two uh, helpers. Or there, I've been in some where, like, especially in the peyote tradition, which is a, a little bit different, um, there's like 30 people and three helpers. And so the cost of dosage or therapy for each applicant there is like, works out to be like, I don't know, $150. $150 for like what I think the evidence shows is often as like effective for treating mental illness or helping people improve their well-being as like multiple years of psychotherapy, which would cost tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
And so, yeah, there are definitely formats and structures where this medicine can get out to people. And there are people today, especially in Vancouver um, and Victoria and all down the West Coast, I'm aware of. It's not like, uh, was it Washington just legalized the treatments? So Washington mm-hmm. or Oregon? Uh, Oregon. Oregon, yeah, decriminalized it. And yeah, there's all over the Americas, at least, this has become illegal. And the underground already exists. If you're in a position, listeners, where you want to find them, um, yeah, start asking because there are amazing practitioners out there. There's also some shady ones. Uh, mm-hmm. Do some research, but uh, it's a really effective kind of medicine that is available today. Yeah, absolutely. I wish there was like a, a Yelp for uh, a <laughs> therapist, but that, I guess that just won't work very well. <laughs> yeah, it gets to the issue of like, um, what is it? Uh, stigma and how that drives everything underground. I'm curious what, especially, especially in Vancouver, what the recent vote by City Hall to decriminalize possession, what that will do. And I'm starting to see um, people that I know that are amazing uh, psychedelic therapists in Vancouver starting to get a lot more transparent and public. And maybe even in the future, I'll have some of them on the podcast to talk about what they do. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, nobody's getting busted in Canada for possession of um, psilocybin. Uh, and specifically a lot of the times when I talk about psychedelic therapy, it will be oriented towards psilocybin therapy just cause that's my favorite. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like the risks seem to be quite small if you're doing it in any kind of responsibility or like safety to it. Um, and the gains, like I've talked to RCMP who they know what psilocybin therapy and uh, MDMA therapy is, and they're interested in it. They're not like, oh, drug addicts. They're like, okay, I could really benefit from this. So their attitude, at least the people I've talked to is less like we need to stop this and more of like, yeah, the laws really need to catch up with what's going on yeah no that's a really great point and i think maybe we're at the point right now where it's still just under it's starting to come on the radar but maybe it's still just at the point where it's like too low a threshold for it to really be a priority uh, of enforcement but i I, my guess is at a certain point when it becomes more predominant they're either going to have to really start speaking to it positively because right now i think the, the government for the most part has just kind of had like a neutral stance and it's like we don't know if this is effective yet da, 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 which is fair like you want to make sure you you know you, you yeah well there's lots of reasons for that but um yeah i think at a certain point they're going to have to either uh clamp down on the enforcement of it or they're going to have to acknowledge that there's lots of positive uses and i think right now we're just not quite there yet but we're bubbling up so fast so i'm excited to see um when when the tipping point will be <laughs> Yeah, for sure. If you had to make a quick forecast, when do you think we'll see uh, legalized, like widespread psychedelic therapy in Canada? It's a good question. I, I guess I think 2023 is when we're planning to, when MAPS is planning to roll out MDMA assisted psychotherapy across North America. Cool. Um, so I think if, if you're just looking at MDMA and, and you're cool counting that as a psychedelic, because some people don't necessarily um, then I would say 2023, but until it's like really, really mainstream and widespread, and maybe we have like psilocybin and LSD and a, and a bunch of different psychedelics, then I think that's going to be maybe like 10 years from now is my optimistic, uh, guess, but maybe sooner if we from... really, yeah, maybe sooner if we wow. get our act together. Cause I don't know. I just, <laughs> uh, there's still a lot of work that healing that needs to be done collectively, you know, to accept these, this whole other paradigm of healing. Cause it's not, I don't know. It's, it's really weird. I think the psychedelic experience yourself the psychedelic experience itself really gives you insight into um, a different way of viewing the self. And ultimately I think in a, in the 
medical context, it comes down to the fact that these things are really healing you and in a way, but really they're facilitating uh, you to heal yourself. Mm, totally. And, and, and it's empowering people that to, and letting them know that they are actually able to heal themselves. And there's this concept that I know Mark uses in his literature uh, called the inner healing intelligence. And I think it's used in other places too, but this idea that we have um, this inner healing intelligence, and I think you could probably speak uh, well to this through some of the work that you do. I know that that's, that, that probably informs a lot of your outlook on things uh, mm. to some extent. I don't know, but, um, but yeah, I know that that, that notion itself is so foreign to what our medical system today <laughs> is based on like, oh, the, very, man, yeah. the, the, the fact the you know, the going to your psychiatrist and having them give you a pill that they uh, think is going to work for you. And there's a certain likelihood that it will. Um, but at the end of the day, that the idea that that pill is the thing that is helping you and fixing you is yeah. kind of skewed. And this thing, this therapy offers a whole new paradigm of, of healing. And I think that is going to be hard to, uh, the system's going to need to change a lot to adjust it. So if we can accommodate that change in a nice way and kind of usher it in, like, let's go, then, um, then hopefully it'll be sooner. But I, yeah, bureaucracies are complicated and there's lots of hoops. So mm -hmm. one of the things from, for myself and as somebody who hopes to facilitate this uh, transition into like recognizing this as a, like an effective medicine that's can be made available to everyone is to really uh, start to work more and target um, people in positions like doctors or nurses, mm -hmm. and yeah. especially like as we're recording this, it's November, 2020, we're right in the middle of COVID, the thick of it. And when I talk to nurses and doctors and surgeons and stuff like the, and even when I talk to take a survey of my friends, I've been doing this for a number of years. And what I'm finding is increasingly the levels of mental illness are, uh, skyrocketing, like depression, anxiety, are like, I used to think it was like, oh yeah, it's a constant, like our ancestors probably had the same amount. And when I've started to look at the research, I found that like, no, not at all. It hasn't been a measure of, of, it hasn't been the fact that like, this just hasn't been measured and now we're measuring it and we're getting a better number. It's like, no, this has been measured pretty well. And the numbers are going like two or three times higher than they were like, say 20, 40 years ago. And so I've been really lucky and fortunate to have these conversations with a wide range of people and find that, especially right now, during a time where like social uh, contact is really limited and where there's, yeah, all these things going on that people are really needing help. Like all is not okay in the state of Denmark. And what I really look forward to do is reach out to these people who are in positions of either influence or like, people trust them and want to hear their medical opinions and to offer them psychedelic therapy so that they can heal themselves, which they surely deserve. Cause I really respect and admire the work they do to right. be at the front lines of helping people. And at the second time, hopefully they can help steer public opinion and be like effective um, administrators of this process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great point. Starting with the professionals that are already in the space is super key and, and, giving empowering those people to have these experiences to inform their practice is key because they're so transformational that you can't really tell someone about it as anyone who's taking a psychedelic knows it's hard yeah, to totally to convey that right so yeah it's, it's ineffable they, yeah exactly it's ineffable and it's essential that these people that are potentially going to be treating people with psychedelics obviously it's important that they themselves have navigated that terrain or maybe not even treating, but like, I remember I went to my GP when I was like 14, when during one, my second or third bout with depression. 
And I like explained what was going on for me. And he was very um, patient and listened and kind. And then he prescribed me a placebo. And for whatever reason, he thought I wouldn't understand uh, or decode the prescription I got, but I just Googled it when I got home and I was like, oh, this is a, a, a placebo. So when I went to the pharmacy, they gave me like sugar pills. And wait, what, how, but wait. <laughs> it was like Sorry. a code word. He gave me a piece of paper and it was like one dose of phylloxin or whatever. And I was right, like, and just looked it up and it was clear that it's a placebo yeah. drug. I mean, I guess most people, he told me like, it will help blah, blah, blah. But most people, I guess, were like, okay, thanks, doctor. And they march <laughs> off and they take the pills. But I was like, no, I'm not going to ingest something. I don't know what it is. Uh, good rule of thumb. <laughs> and so I just Googled it and it was like, I had to do a little bit of research. But um, yeah, it was quite clear. It was just a sugar pill. Wow. But that's really I interesting. Think about, yeah, I think about how many people who are like social workers or in emergency rooms or GPs and somebody comes to them and they're like, yeah, like I'm experiencing... Like I was at a party the other day and I met this wonderful person who had been in a number of car accidents, like boom, 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 back to back. And it had really wrecked their life. Or at least this is what I took from what they were saying. Cause they started to get crippling PTSD about like all elements of like going out from their house. And this is like a high functioning person, somebody who's like really healthy and adventurous. And as I'm talking to them, I'm like, Oh, like, do you know about MDMA? And the treatment that that offers for PTSD. Here's like a university educated, high functioning, like 30 something year old. And they're like, no, what's, I know what MDMA is, but what does that have to do with PTSD? I'm like, well, if you do it properly, like the treatment efficacy is something like 80% for persistent enduring effects years after like the therapy. And you could just see that moment where this person who's like in some level of fear and pain and discomfort is like, wait, did you just say 80%? It's like, what's the side effects? It's like, well, the side effects are really minimal. They're really easily managed and you only have to do it twice for it to really be effective. And what followed was just this like, yeah, you just can see the gears turning of like, wait, this thing that I've been working from and seeing experts and like going, doing all these therapies, like there's something I could do twice or say four sessions, like four sessions, including like pre and post. And the fact that people don't know about that and that there aren't people in positions throughout the medical system to say like, here's this really safe, effective treatment that's really inexpensive. And also it will just make you a better person. You'll probably be happier, more open to new experiences, kinder to your loved ones. You'll report less suffering. Like that seems like a really important and urgent thing to help educate people about. Absolutely. Did, did you, uh, did you follow up with it? Did you ever get? Yeah, totally. There? Yeah. I've been in touch with them for a while and um, I'm waiting to see what they do with it. Um, okay. I've let them know that I'm open to uh, being in that support role if they're, if they're wow. interested in it. Amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, there's one thing to note though, is like, it's an ineffable experience, meaning that it's really hard to describe. It's also a super powerful and in some sense, like destabilizing experience for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So for anyone listening, I'd really recommend that it's not something you rush headlong into. Do your research. There's lots of beautiful information out online. Go on YouTube, look up like, what is it like to trip? You'll find people giving stories and describing the hows and whatnots. Um, but I would never encourage anyone to like just rush into it because it really is something you should feel ready and prepared for. Absolutely. I would echo that 100%. Yeah. Well, 
just before I let you go here, I want to ask a couple rapid fire questions and uh, get to some instant, uh, interesting tidbits about who you are and what you do. Okay. Uh, first question for you and having seen you work in a professional capacity in a couple of ways, I'm curious what you think your own sort of superpowers are. What do you bring to the world? It's a great question. I think one of the things that I, I think that I, um, that I bring that is a strength to a lot of situations is my ability to connect with people. I, I think that sounds kind of cliche and kind of general. And I think if I could maybe define it or distill it down to a few more, maybe more specific things, but really the, the ability to just kind of connect with anyone that I meet, I really don't have a hard time connecting with people. So when it comes to mm. um, people in the, in the park, people at the beach, uh, people in my classes, I just have a tendency to, I know I find it easy to, to just make friends with people and, and see where they're coming from and connect with their humanity. I think that's one, one quick answer for you. Well, that's beautiful. It also seems like you'd make a great candidate for a super spreader. <laughs> I would. And that's why this has been, this, uh, yeah, this has been a challenging time because that is definitely an aspect of my life that I miss a lot right now. So yeah. that's, that's a really good point. Um, I'm trying mm. to think as another one, cause I think you asked two, right? Uh, no, just what okay. was your superpower? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what I'll give you. Cool. I'm curious, uh, in the last five years, what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life? Hmm. I've always been a pretty active person, but like putting, basically putting my health above everything else is huge. And I'd say that reflects itself in a lot of habits I, I have. So working out six days a week, um, wow. and just, always, yeah, eating healthy. Like, I guess there's lots of smaller habits that kind of percolate up to this more general idea, but yeah, this just the belief of prioritizing your body. Cause it's your holy vessel. It's your <laughs> instrument. I don't know what you want to call it, but, uh, it's so important. And I think, um, to neglect it is really such a shame because it has so much it's amazing, first of all, to develop it. And I think there's so many benefits that you can reap, even just aside from like um, maybe some of the initial like kind of obvious uh, things around like being capable in the world, but just like, yeah, putting putting health above everything else I think is amazing because it, it really sets sets yourself up for, a, it's, it gives you the, the foundation that you need to be able to achieve any other goals that you might have. At least that's what I found for myself. Right on. And yeah, I mean, you're a pretty fit guy. I'd be curious, uh, what does your workout plan look like and what's your diet? Uh, so at the moment I just injured myself, unfortunately. So this last week I haven't been as active as I normally am, but for the last like couple months, I've typically I'm, I'm like a cardio guy or a long distance runner. That's been my main sport has been training for like long distance races and stuff. So I like to mm -hmm. run a lot. Um, but lately I've been having a bit more of a focus around gaining strength and, and muscle just a little bit. I wanted to kind of shift my goals and try something new. So for the past, like since August, basically, I've been focusing a lot more on calisthenics and weight training. And so uh, for the last couple months, uh, because I did get a membership at UBC, I've been going uh, five days a week there to just do weight training. And so I have a, a specific uh, workout plan that I've been using there where you target like three muscle groups uh, per day, pretty much, and just alternate those. And then there's like a rest day on the weekend. And usually I use that day to do something that's still like an like a walk or a run so it's still exercise but it's a bit more yeah, yeah like uh flowy you could say so even yoga I, I find like is a really nice way to decompress and in terms of diet i just 
I don't have a very strict diet, but I just make sure I really focus on eating kind of like what you said towards the beginning, whole foods or just like healthy, natural foods, like lots of vegetables, lots of fruits. Um, I typically, I do have like uh, some supplements that I use uh, as well, but for the most part, it's just, it's just simple whole foods and mostly uh, vegetarian. I, I've tried to mm. stay away from eating too much meat, but at the same time I did grow up eating it. So it's, it's something that um, is definitely ingraining me a little bit. And I, I think mm-hmm. there's, it's healthy uh, to, at least it's healthy for my body. It works with my body. So I, I try and balance it out. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm also a runner. I'm curious, uh, do you do trail running or do you running on like concrete or what's up? Uh, for the most part, I would do running on concrete. Like all the races I would do would, would be like ro- uh, road races. But uh, I was lucky when I was for the longest time, when I was training for most of my races, I was out, out at a uh, UBC like living close to point gray. And so I had like really close access to uh, uh, Pacific spirit park, which is so like good. Of, so, so good. Like one of the most so amazing, magical places in Vancouver, I think. And I just love it dearly. So I would, I would do most of my training there, but then I started to realize that because it's all the trails are so beautiful and nice. Like I wasn't actually getting enough pavement in my training. Uh, so mm. I had to start um, balancing it. So I would do like half specific spirit and then I'd go like on the road or whatever, but yeah, Pacific spirit trail running is like, can't beat it. When, when you say you're not getting enough concrete, is that like, you're just feeling too good running on the soil and you're like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta do the concrete for a little bit. No, I just meant like, like at the time, like in my last year, I was training for a marathon and yeah. I was around my, my long runs on Sundays were around like 35 K was kind of what I was getting up to towards the end of my training plan. And if you're running all of that on trail like nice squishy soft trail then when it comes time to do the actual marathon which is 100 percent on pavement then your body's just not going to be used to it and it's going to be too challenging yeah. and you'll, you'll hurt yourself so i just have to it really is such a big difference like to, on your shins and your calves i find yeah. especially in feet right um so yeah just a matter of uh incorporating that slowly in so that when i actually do the races i'm not like dying <laughs> yeah fair enough i i mostly do trail runs okay uh, nice so this next question won't be as applicable, but I'm curious, uh, what shoes do you use? Uh, maybe, I, maybe of two. I don't know. I've usually, I usually do alternate between two pairs. Uh, and I usually always use a six. I don't know why I've just kind of been a big fan of them. And that's something and that boy. I, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I've kind of stick to them a lot, but the last pair of shoes that I have have and currently are using right now is like, I think it's a pair of Sauconies. I don't know. If yeah. I'm nice. Right, but uh, yeah. yeah. What about you? Uh, I have the Saucony Peregrines. Um, okay, cool. I think I have the sevens and the eights. That's just the years they came out. Um, but yeah, I love the like uh, minimal drop. I think it's like a six mil drop. So like the dif- distance from the heel to the toe isn't this big wedge. It's like pretty stable. And then um, there's not a ton of padding. There's enough that like you can't feel the rocks and stuff, but right. And, and that's got a really wide uh, footbed. So my toes can actually spread out and like be like this as opposed to like a claw that I'm like, <laughs> striking yeah, I've, I've noticed that recently there's a trend towards having that now more even not just not even just for trail running but for just road running in general man i'm so grateful for it because i grew up <laughs> playing so many sports where i ran all the time and my feet yeah. were like the philosophy was like get them as tight as possible and i had so many injuries in like my knees and ankles that were literally just because my foot was like crumpled <laughs> and i was like running on my joints yeah well, i'm glad you found the way there yeah, totally. Are, sorry, are they trail running shoes or running shoes? Uh, the Peregrines are uh, trail running. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I'm curious uh, if you 
yeah, just wanted to get into a little bit of the parent. Well, I guess maybe we can just end on a question of something you brought up a lot. I've heard that you were saying like your experiences with psychedelics were quite um, important and sensational and really like help motivate you to overcome um, the stigma or reluctance of society. And I'm curious, like if you could just go into a bit more, like what were your experiences like? Like, what is it that you found in these? Um, yeah, like what did you do and what happened? Yeah, for sure. So like I said earlier, these experiences of mine, the initial ones were coming out of high school. So I guess I was like around 16 or something, 17 at that time. And they were, they were my first taste, I, I think, at like what a true mystical experience was. And so I grew up a Christian. And so I actually could maybe argue that it's hard to remember back, you know, at a certain point, but I, I remember going to like church and even like singing at like church camp, I would like sing songs with people. And like, I remember just, I can remember pretty distinctly having like very emotional experiences that I hadn't had before mm. in a setting like that. And whether or not it was, you know, the Holy spirit or whatever it was being talked about coming in is open to interpretation. And um, I, I definitely appreciated all of what I got from that. But then after that, and when I started learning more about science and, you know, philosophy and stuff in my high school, I, then I, I say that I kind of transitioned to becoming an agnostic atheist, I guess I would call myself back then. Um, so going from that, um, psychedelics really like flip my switch in terms of my like religious uh, tendency, I guess, like I really started to believe in something a lot bigger than myself. Um, I wouldn't yeah. really call it Jesus or anything like that it wasn't res restricted to a specific religion, but I'd say the, it really gave me a, a taste of what a true mystical experience was like. And so mm -hmm. if, to elaborate on that, like a tiny bit more, like it was, it's really, it comes back again to kind of what uh, you and I were talking about initially here and, and overlaps with experiences that I've, I have had subsequently with just meditating, which has been really interesting. Like, I think there's a really interesting parallel between psychedelics and meditation and how you can pair these together. But as, as a young guy, like trying these things, I mean, I always tell people that psychedelics are the most potent uh, experience that you can have as a human um i i think they're up there at least they're in the top five uh, along with like i haven't had a kid yet but i'm sure having a kid is going to be like up there and yeah i i don't know like it's it sounds cr crazy to say to you know and but like it's honestly true like some of the, these experiences are just lay the the meaning that they have is is um it's all layered in this really beautiful way in the sense that there's just layers of meaning that you can, you can peel back. Obviously the, the visual aspect of it is, is incredible. And it's amazing what your mind can create. Cause at the end of the day, you're taking the substance, but it's all these things that you're seeing are just, it's your reflections of your psyche coming out. Oftentimes your subconscious. So, you know, all mm -hmm. of, all of that's is awesome. But like, I think to some extent, and what I learned from subsequently taking more psychedelics is that a lot of the times I think the visuals are actually a distraction from, um, what is really being offered by a psychedelic drug um, mm, in terms of what, in terms of what is kind of underneath that or, and like, what are the insights that are being gleaned and, and what's being, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's kind of a content structure divide there. Like there's the content of your hallucinations and how they're appearing, but then there's also the structure in which they're appearing. And I think paying attention to that can be really useful and, and I guess I just end by saying like, ultimately it comes down again to the, um, the sense of self. And so it's very often reported on psychedelics that people have these self-dissolving experiences or ego death, ego dissolution, whatever. And I think that is at the core of a lot of what also has been termed mystical experiences. And so just having that sense of self 
um, kind of be stripped away or, or altered with is very alarming, but at the same time to have it come back and be just, and kind of have it reflected in a different way and being seen under new light was such a valuable experience for me. And just having that third Mm -hmm. perspective to see myself in the context of something greater than myself. And I think that's where that religious kind of undertone comes in. And personally, I think that's at the end of the day, what a lot of religions are getting at is this idea of experiencing God um, and experiencing oneness. And so, yeah, the psychedelics have been super valuable for me at getting just a small glimpse at what that is like. Right on. And when you say psychedelics, like, and when you were like 16 or 17 or whatever, um, what were the ones that you were experimenting with? Um, so for me, I mean, I started smoking cannabis and I, I personally do consider uh, psychedelic, sorry, cannabis a psychedelic, especially when it comes to like doing edibles. And so that's was kind of my first entrance, I'd say to the psychedelic space. Like personally, maybe it, my view on this is, is grown a little bit, but back then, at least I thought that I kind of saw that on a scale. And so like taking edibles was like the psychedelic experience here. And then mushrooms and LSD were like going up the spectrum. Um, Mm. And so I would just say, yeah, like at the time it was, it was really just uh, cannabis mushrooms and LSD that I've experimented. And really it's, those are the main ones that I have experienced with at all. I actually haven't really tried. um, I've, I've tried MDMA. um, But other than that, I haven't tried any other psychedelics. So there's lots that are still yeah. on my, uh, on my radar, but yeah, it was a right. lot of experimentation with, uh, with yeah mushrooms and LSD. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, between the two, uh, LSD or mushrooms, do you have a favorite or a particular uh, strong alliance within either? Now I'd say it's, it's LSD. I feel like I, it's actually interesting. I, initially when I took mushrooms, I, I had a great time. My first trip, my second trip was bad, da, da, da. but at, at a certain point I, started my body developed like an aversion to them so even just the mm. thought of the smell of mushrooms makes me want to throw mm-hmm. up and um i get quite nauseous on the come up so that's not necessarily bad i know that's a common thing a lot of people experience it does help if i like lemon tech uh, yep. or there's you know there's some like make a tea like that does help but at the end of the day i feel like mushrooms are, are cool but they're very like kind of crazy and like all over the place uh, which is fun sometimes but i don't know for for me um lsd has always been a sharper clearer uh, experience and I just like a laser kind of, beam <laughs> yeah kind of like a laser beam and I kind of like that and lately yeah. I've been especially if I'm in a situation where I'm um, wanting to enjoy that experience with someone else I feel like it's also more um, it's easier to navigate on LSD like I can have amazing experiences on mushrooms I still do but I think I prefer to prefer those um, to be a, like when I'm alone like in nature mm. whereas I think LSD for me is more flexible so I kind of like that aspect of it yeah. I, I mean, I would echo, I, lo- I love that element of LSD. I feel like at times I can be like a superhero when I'm on it and just like get <laughs> to the point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I, I mean, it sounds like, yeah, that you've had some rocky or turbulent experiences with mushrooms. And yeah, I hope I would hold for you is that you can continue to, whenever it feels good or you're comfortable to uh, see if there's ways to bring it back in, in a way that's um, steady and stable. And I'd be curious, um, have you actually done any of the like more therapeutic, like blinders on a couch with music mm-hmm. uh, with uh, psilocybin? Yeah, actually. So the only experiences I've had in that context, which has been three on like a higher dose on a couch music a blindfold has been with mushrooms. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever and- done um, the alternative, something that's like a lot more common in the underground sphere, which is like uh, you'll go lie on a yoga mat or a bed or whatever 
usually there's a bunch of people in the room and then two people will be performing like a solo concert for like four hours or so. That sounds cool. I've been in a similar situation where there's been a bunch of people on floor on mats and there's been two people around that are healers, but they weren't really performing music. They're performing kind of a mixture of like shamanic arts and dance. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a kind of a mix. And that, and that was a really positive experience, honestly. Like that was, yeah. it wasn't a very high dose, um, yeah. but I had an extremely very calming, still uh, not all over the place experience in that setting. So I think that yeah. was, really but I, I, and I know a lot of intention went around to creating a, a a healing container for that. So, yeah, I was going to say that if you, if you are in a position where it feels like a bit ungrounded, which by the way, is not what mushrooms feel like for me. Um, I would say that's, yeah. It's, uh, and one of the things that could help really structure that and is great advice for just anybody who's curious about this is to do it so intentionally with community of people who are prepared and like proficient and professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, it really helps to have those like structures set in place in that framework that helps like almost translate whatever is happening into a framework that makes sense. Um, And I, I get, think given your like real interest and passion for music that especially, and that's why I brought up the musician version, there'd be a lot of like uh, scaffolding to like glom and spread your experience onto to make sense. Yeah. That honestly sounds amazing. I would love to do something like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for what it's worth also, there's the possibility of amplifying, uh, psilocybin through the use of this other substance, uh, which is a MAOI inhibitor called Syrian Rue. And that can like, again, just like amplify, I've heard it called like adding base to the experience of the psychedelic, uh, experience. And, uh, some of the people I know who do the medicine with the music, uh, do that so you can take like three or four grams of mushrooms and then like one gram of Syrian rue and it's like equal to like a modified like five or six gram which is quite intense um psilocybin experience um but it's different because it brings in like some things that are more similar to maybe dmt or like ayahuasca so uh yeah one of the colloquial names is called psilowaska um <laughs> but yeah it's 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 worth checking out it's a lot of fun yeah no that's really cool i would definitely love to check that out sounds amazing i take it you've done something like that you've had that experience a number of times yeah i think um four or five times now and yeah the last time i did it was i think the weekend before canada had its first case of covid actually back in uh march march 12th was the last one i did of that setting and it was one of the most profound experiences in my life and um yeah i'm just super grateful for the amount of clarity and purpose and invigoration and love i felt and also the rawness and the realness about um, things that I was doing that were contributing to my own suffering and the suffering of people I care about. So I'm really grateful for that medicine being available and for being as safe and effect- as effective as it is. That's amazing. Yeah. That's true. Last amazing. question, and then I'll let you go. Um, mm-hmm. Since you started doing psychedelics, I'm curious like what your frequency is with them. Like, How often do you trip? Uh, yeah, I trip probably once every three months now on average i'd say three or four months so not too often i think so i don't like smoke around... any cannabis at all anymore i cool. used to smoke a lot so it's really just my yeah, mushrooms or lsd that i would use and mm-hmm. yeah like just like whenever i kind of feel called to do it really i i just it's rarely a time where i intentionally i just i mean sometimes i'll intentionally set up a, a time to do it and it'll feel right but 
yeah, it usually always comes after the feeling first. It's like, oh, I haven't done it in a while. And it really feels mm-hmm. like I could use that like cleanse and shower kind of mm. um, aspect of it. So, so yeah, once every three to four months. Cool. Yeah, I think I'm on a very similar timeline. Yeah. Um, why do you stop smoking cannabis? Um, it's a it's a kind of a odd um, reason for in most circumstances when people ask me this question. But since we've been talking so much about psychedelics, it's not really odd here. But mushrooms actually told me to stop smoking mm. cannabis um, if if I wanted to give a simple answer. But really, it was I was doing my first high dose of mushrooms, like five grams, with my girlfriend at the time, and I remember at the time I I had been smoking cannabis quite a lot in high school and I remember like being really high on mushrooms and basically being compelled to go get my vaporizer which had like weed in it and oh wow and I remember just like while I was smoking I just became very conscious of what was happening Mm. and that experience just like sat with me for so long and I remember ever since that day I just I I basically realized that it was a crutch yeah um, in that moment and I realized that I was using it I had yeah and I and yeah exactly it can be right and it, it isn't for everyone I think I gained tremendous value from using cannabis but at a certain point there must have been a time where it shifted for me and i also did get the paranoia stuff so that's another simple answer too is i i started getting paranoid when i started using it for some reason it, it didn't give me that same um blissful experience that i used to get with mm-hmm. it and i just i would just think really fast and i would be very conscious hyper conscious of my thoughts and it became um kind of unfortunate that i lost that um how it used to be and I, i've been very curious about this is I've heard it's a very common experience with lots of people. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for sharing, Michael. Yeah, of course. Thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. I wonder if there's anything you want to steer uh, people to any place that they can find you or the various organizations you're a part of. Um, sure. I appreciate that. And yeah, I'd invite people to go check out mapscanada.org for any information related to uh, psychedelic science. I think we've got some good resources on there and we can point you that website will also point you in other directions too. Uh, third wave, I think it's .org or I think, or maybe .com, but just look up the third wave. That's also, I think a resource that I really appreciate. They have a lot more like in-depth um, resources on specific drugs. So I'd recommend that if people are curious about learning more about psychedelics. And then finally, as Blake mentioned earlier, and we were talking about, I, if you're interested in psych- psychedelic clothes and you want to rep- represent yourself in that way, like um, we'd love you to check out uh, some of the stuff that I'm doing with the Flying Sage. And you can find that at the flyingsage.ca. Yeah, cool. What's your favorite piece of the collection? Uh, my favorite piece, honestly, is it's not even like the most psychedelic one, but it's it's the astral projection hoodie. I just think the design is really cool. We have like these designs on the sleeves as well. And I just think it's, yeah. really, it's really sweet. Yeah. yeah, it looks great. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for the conversation. I can't wait to see you again in the flesh when, yeah, whenever the fates allow. Yeah, me too. I'm stoked for that, uh, for that opportunity. And again, I'm, I'm stoked for this opportunity to talk to you today. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, cheers, man. See you.